else is growing our, in our faith together. Um, so if you have a group of, you have any middle schoolers or high schoolers that are not connecting somewhere, please get them to fuel uh, student ministries on, at 7 o'clock on Tuesdays. Um, anyway, that's all I got. Happy Easter. Um, check out this video real quick. Christ is risen. Amen. And to that you respond, he is risen indeed. All right, I'm going to do it again. Christ is risen. Amen. Amen. And what we just did there together, affirming that Christ is risen, is the same call and response that has gone on literally since the first century. They can date it back to the church affirming the, the resurrection of Christ. It's so great to have you with us this Easter. I want to say a special hello and welcome to my in-laws. They made the trip from Guam just to be with us this weekend. And Well, I think mostly it was for me, but they may also want to see their grandchildren and such and their daughter. But uh, they, they are away from their own congregation just to be with us, and it means so much. So thank you, uh, Pastor Albert and Pastor Judy, for being with us today. Uh, it means so much. So yeah, I kind of give a spoiler there, huh? He is risen. Um, Christians are kind of the worst at that, uh, you know, keeping, keeping a secret. Uh, you might be like, what, I'm only on season two, don't tell me what happens. And we're like, no, the finale is amazing. Jesus dies and comes back to life. It's great. Um, but uh, uh, but, but uh, it is just so exciting what God is doing, and, uh, and we celebrate what he has done. Um, back, back in my college days, I had a job uh, waiting tables for a summer, and uh, it was in a really touristy area. And I was excited because it was the 4th of July, and I was scheduled to work, and I was anticipating a lot of people. It was a good chance to make a lot of tips and things and a lot of money. So I was, went to work, but the problem with it being a tourist area and busy is it's really hard to find parking. So I ended up circling the neighborhood several times looking for a parking spot. And on one of my trips around, uh, a pedestrian suddenly stepped out into the crosswalk in front of me. And so I slowed down and braked for them. Um, unfortunately, the car behind me didn't feel the same way. And they, bam, right into the back of me and uh, totaled my car. Uh, now, this was a college car, so it didn't take too much damage to make it a total loss. But, uh, <laughs> but just, just it, it actually made it so it didn't run anymore, too. It, it really crunched it enough. So, so I limped it to the side of the road. I was like, this is unbelievable. And so um, I was shaken up, but we, we exchanged insurance information. And while we waited for the tow trucks, I called... Uh, my work to let them know what had happened. I said, I'm, I'm, I'm a little shaken up, but I think I'm okay. My neck's a little sore, but I think I'm going to be all right. And you'll never guess what my manager asked me. Will you still be coming in, right? <laughs> what time can we expect you? And, and I was like, are you serious? And so I'm sitting there, oh man, this has just been a really, just quite, quite a turn of events. And uh, it, I ended up having to wait for the tow truck for like two or three hours, waiting for this tow truck, sitting on the curb. And uh, two... Uh, police officers on bicycles were riding by down the sidewalk, and I thought, here we go. These guys are going to come, and they're going to get a statement from me, take a report. Uh, maybe they'll give me one of those sticker badges. I don't know. I, like, make me feel better. And uh, they didn't even slow down. But as they rode past me, one guy called over his shoulder, 
you can't park there. I was like, oh. Uh, now, I, I really do uh, deeply appreciate police officers and all they do, and I'm sure they were headed somewhere very important, but it was just like the, the, the icing on the cake, right? Like, what a day. And then, and then I'm told I can't park here um, with my broken car. And so as I waited for, for my poor heap of what was left of my car to be towed away, it was just quite the turn of events. And life can come at you fast, can't it? Like, like you think you know what's going to be happening, you think you know what to expect, you have everything planned out, and suddenly everything turns on its ear. And, and, and the unexpected comes up, and, and things aren't what you had planned. And I, I was thinking of this perspective as, uh, as I was studying this, this week, uh, for this weekend, I was just, as I was studying through and reading the story of the resurrection, and I considered the story of the disciples. These are some guys that really thought they had everything figured out as to what was going to be happening. They, they, had, they had looked at, uh, they, they were with Jesus, and I think they really felt like they were riding high. Things were really good. Jesus was exactly who they wanted him to be. He was essentially going to be the new King David for them. If you remember the story of King David, King David uh, over, over through the, the Philistines that were trying to invade and, and he, he set up a kingdom that was the strongest kingdom in Israel's history and they saw that in, in, in Jesus. They were like, Jesus is going to be the new King David. He's going to kick the Romans out. He's going to restore our sovereignty. We're no longer going to have these occupiers living here, but he's going to reestablish Israel as being a sovereign nation. And, and on top of that, Jesus was like brilliant. He was intellectually dominating everyone that he had a debate with. It didn't matter if it was on politics. It didn't matter if it was on theology. He made them look like fools. He, uh, he, he uh, would have these conversations in these debates, and, and he would leave these people speechless. In some cases, they literally couldn't even respond. and would just have to walk away. Just, uh, uh, I guess we'll go. And, and so he's this brilliant, uh, brilliant uh, mind. And then, and then he had, on top of it, well, let's be honest, he had superpowers, Jesus could uh, heal diseases that were incurable. Crippled people were walking again that had never walked in their lives. He could make the blind see with just his spit. He, he, he could restore right minds to people that had lost their sanity. He could literally manifest food from almost nothing. He could even make money appear. He paid his taxes by going fishing. How many of you guys are like, let's do that. We need to pay taxes. We'll just go fishing. He walked on water, and Jesus could literally control the elements. That's what especially blew the, the, the disciples' minds, is when he, by a word, calmed the wind and the waves. They're like, who is this guy? And so Jesus has all this power, and I'm sure they're imagining what this could mean for a military leader. Think about what that would mean. Your wounded could be healed instantly. You could feed an army. You could even create weather systems to your benefit. And on top of all of this, Jesus isn't just acting unilaterally, but he has popular support. The crowds are behind him. Jesus can wander off into the desert, and tens of thousands of people will follow him without even food or water, just without provisions, just follow him out there. Like, this guy's popular. Last weekend, we had Palm Sunday, right? And Palm Sunday was when Jesus, a week before Easter, rode into Jerusalem and this was the capital of Israel, and this throng, this mob started to gather around him, and they started chanting and shouting, Hosanna, which means Savior. It means, it means rescuer. So they're chanting this, and there's this, this growing groundswell of something's going to happen, and the disciples are feeling it. They're starting to actually have debates over when Jesus does take his throne, who's going to be his right-hand man? 
Who's going to be kind of comprising his cabinet? Because these guys know we're the original posse, right? He called us. He, we are personally selected. We're in the entourage. We're in Jesus' crew. And uh, when this kingdom comes, let's determine who's going to be in, you know, right, right there with him. And so, so they're, they're feeling things rising to this crescendo. And then on Friday, they gathered together for the Last Supper. But they didn't know it was the Last Supper. To them, it was just supper, right? They were just getting together to have uh, what, was the, what was to them the Passover feast. The Passover is where they share what's called a Seder meal. And it, goes, it dates back 1,800 years to when the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. And it's essentially like our Thanksgiving dinner. They have a special meal together to remember what God has done in His provision and to give thanks. And so they have this special meal, and it's not the first time they've done this. They do it every year, and they've been with Jesus for like three years. So this isn't new or unusual. They have dinner with Jesus. And after Thanksgiving dinner, Jesus takes them out into the garden, up onto the Mount of Olives, and He says, I want you to pray with me. Again, not unusual. Jesus has before gone into the hills to pray. And He says, I want you to stay awake and pray with me. And they're like, that is a tall order, though. We just ate Thanksgiving dinner, and you want us to stay awake all night and pray? And so they started to doze off. Understandably, I think. And, 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 you know, you just had a big meal. It's been a crazy week. And they fall asleep, but they're awakened to the sound of soldiers and the light of torches. And suddenly, in the midst of all this, something changes. They're awakened because a defector, a traitor, had betrayed Jesus. One of their very own, Judas, one of the twelve innermost people they should trust, had betrayed Jesus with something as intimate as a kiss. And soldiers came, and I'm sure at some level, the disciples expected Jesus to call down fire. I mean, they knew what he was capable of. Maybe, maybe he, would, he would call to his followers to have the uprising. Now's the time. Uh, one, of the soldiers even pulls out a, or one of the disciples even pulls out a sword and chops a soldier's ear off. He's like, it's go time. But Jesus rather capitulates. He says, no, 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 no. Put away your swords. And he surrenders. He surrenders to these soldiers, and he then is arrested and taken away into the night. And over the course of one evening's time, everything changed that the disciples thought they had figured out. Through a series of kangaroo courts and, and uh, these, these uh, mock trials, this fickle mob that had just days before been chanting Savior, basically ready to institute him as king, was now shouting for his execution. Based on nothing. Based on some people just riling them up. It shows how quickly the, the crowd can be turned, doesn't it? And the crowd is chanting for his execution. And they say they would rather see a known political terrorist, a murderer, be let free than Jesus to be let free. And when Pilate asks them what they want done, they say, we want him executed, we want him killed, and let his blood be on our hands and on the hands of our children. Whoa. Have you ever hated someone so much that you say, let the blood that is, is, that is held into account be on my hands, but not just my hands, but on my children's hands? And suddenly there's this turn, this turn in politics, this turn in religion, and and the disciples are watching this, and Jesus is taken, and he's beaten and tortured in front of them. And they watch this man that they've decided to follow be beaten, and as Isaiah says, he was beaten to the point he wasn't even recognizable anymore. And the Romans made such a point of his execution, it wasn't just about eliminating Jesus, but it was about humiliating Jesus and degrading him. 
The Bible says that they tore Jesus' beard from his face. And a beard was a, a Jewish man's dignity. They, they tore his beard from his face and it says that he was stripped naked and his, his clothes were evil, even gambled over on who would get to keep his clothes. And, you know, in many of the crucifixes we see, Jesus is wearing an appropriate loincloth of some sort. But the truth is, he was executed completely naked in order to affect the highest level of, of, of eliminating his dignity. And naked, the broken body of God was hung on a tree between two criminals. What? A shift for these disciples. I'm sure they were thinking 12 hours ago we were having Thanksgiving dinner and we were celebrating Jesus about to become king. And now he's hanging on a cross and he's dying. What a shift. And Jesus died on that tree and above his head there was a sign that said King of the Jews. And it In this time, Jesus went from being, he was no longer a revolutionary. It was no longer uh, that he was was turning the tide of how religion was viewed or or how politics was viewed. It was no longer that, but now he was was a martyr, but not even a martyr, because really a martyr is someone that stirs up uh, a, a, a revolution, right? A martyr is someone that's a symbol that people can rally around and move forward with. But Jesus wasn't that, because Jesus' death actually put the disciples and his followers on notice. That anyone who follows him could have the same fate. We are hunting these people down. These people are are not welcome. And so these people, these disciples that had walked away from everything they knew, they walked away from their, their livelihoods, their jobs, they walked away from their families, they walked away from it all to follow Jesus, and now they're recognizing we are marked men. We are, we are known associates with Jesus. People are asking, like Peter, I recognize your accent. You hang out with Jesus, don't you? And they're going, oh man, they know who we are. And so they did what a lot of us would probably do. They went into hiding. They went underground. They went behind locked doors. They hid. This was a weekend that I'm sure did not, they did not have any clue how it would turn out. And despite Jesus' warnings, no matter... What he had said, because how many times did Jesus tell the disciples, listen guys, I'm going to be betrayed, I am going to be executed, and in three days I'm coming back to life. How many times did he tell them that? Over and over. But it was like, you know, they were not receiving that. They didn't hear that. They were pretty pretty much set on who Jesus was and what he was going to do. But despite all of this, they were missing it. And it caught them off guard. How, How often with us do we have our best laid plans, everything figured out, but... One phone call, one news headline, one conversation, and everything can come crashing down. How many of us can think of a time where we got a phone call we weren't expecting, we answered it, maybe not even thinking it would be anything major, and suddenly our world comes apart? And I'm sure for these disciples, everything just imploded. And Jesus is put into someone else's grave because he didn't have any land to be buried on, and he was a criminal. And they buried him and he was in that grave for one night, for two nights. And the next day, on Sunday, something happened. Open your Bibles with me. We're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. You can use your phones too. Your phones have Bibles on them. It's incredible what technology is these days. Um, Matthew 28. It says this. We're going to be reading right from verse 1. It says, early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Suddenly, 
there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled aside the stone, and sat on it. His face shone like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook with fear when they saw him, and they fell into a dead faint. Then the angel spoke to the woman, Do not be afraid. The women, I'm sorry, the women. Do not be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead, just as he said would happen. Come, see where his body was lying, and now go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Remember what I have told you. The women ran quickly from the tomb. They were very frightened, but also filled with great joy, and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. So these women were on their way to pay their last respects. They were on their way to basically embalm Jesus' body, to, to, to put kind of a closing statement on a story that ended as a tragedy. They were going to say goodbye to uh, someone that had meant so much to them through their life. But just as in a moment their world was turned upside down with the uh, betrayal and death of Jesus, this solemn moment of mourning was replaced with what the Bible says, joy. I mean, it, there was fear in there, but there was joy. Um, because the truth is, the empty tomb is what gives us hope. These women's lives were suddenly filled with hope. See, they go to an empty tomb, and the angel, it says, has rolled the stone away. And as we read later in the book of John, locked doors were no match for Jesus in his, in his uh, resurrected and glorified state. In the book of John, the disciples are all huddled in a room with a locked door because they're still frightened. And it says that Jesus appeared among them. Locked doors to Jesus mean nothing. I don't think that rock in front of the tomb was going to hold Jesus back. That tomb was opened up not so that Jesus could get out, but so that the disciples could get in and see the empty tomb. The empty tomb is what gives us hope. So the angel invites them in, and, and the tomb was opened to show, to show them that it's empty and that hope could be found. You see, Matthew says they were frightened, but they were filled with great joy. They didn't have all the answers. They didn't have a perfect theology. They're like, well, naturally, and now I understand, da-da-da-da-da. They were, they were shocked, but there was hope that overtook them. They, 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 I'm sure, didn't grasp all the implications of what the resurrection meant. But in that, the empty tomb, what it did was it turned night into day. It took despair that they had and it turned it into hope and death into life. And the two Marys are filled with this joy and they run back and they tell the disciples the good news. Aren't you glad that the empty tomb is what gives us hope? We might not fully even grasp all the mysteries that are, that are there behind the triune God and, and Jesus resurrected. But through it all, we have a profound hope because the tomb is empty. So the two Marys report back to the disciples and they tell them everything they've seen in John's account. Um, John, John, in the book of John, actually, why don't we jump there? Grab your Bibles again. Jump ahead. Let's do it. So we're going from Matthew to the book of John to chapter 20. We're going to look at what he says about what happened here. In John chapter 20, the Marys report back to the disciples, and um, John kind of has this quasi-autobiographical quasi, uh, way he writes the book of John. He calls himself the other disciple, instead of saying me. So, um, so he writes about himself in this story as the other disciple. So here's what it says. Start, let's start in verse 3. It says, so Peter and the other disciple started out for the tomb. They were both running, but... The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. 
He stooped and looked in and saw the linen, linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. Then Simon Peter arrived, and he went inside. He also noticed the linen wrappings lying there, while the cloth that had covered Jesus' head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and he believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that Jesus must rise from the dead. Now, this is an interesting account. This is an interesting part of the story here. Because here we see Peter and John both reaching the tomb. And they both go inside, but they have, like the women, they went inside, but they both have different reactions. It says that John went inside and he believed. But it doesn't say the same about Peter. Did you catch that? It doesn't say the same about Peter. But uh, as a matter of fact, if you jump a chapter ahead, so this is in chapter 20, if we jump a chapter ahead, do you know what Peter says? He sees the empty tomb. He experiences that, and do you know what he says? I'm going fishing. So, so John sees the open tomb, he believes, but Peter sees it, and he returns to his old occupation. He goes back to what he knows. He returns to the way things always were. But when Jesus came walking out on the shore, everything changed for Peter. You see, Peter and John are out in the boat, And John looks up and goes, see, I told you, there he is right there on the shore. And Peter sees Jesus, and he can't even contain himself. He jumps into the water and swims to shore and sees Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, for himself. We give Thomas a hard time for not not believing. I think Peter needs to be given a little bit of a hard time here, right? So Peter sees Jesus, and he realizes that when he sees and experiences the resurrected Christ, that he can't go back to life as it used to be. He can't just go back to his old job as it used to be and live the way things always were, because the resurrection gave him purpose. And church, can I tell you, as individuals, the resurrection gives us purpose. We don't live life as it always has been because there's a resurrected Jesus that gives us meaning. More than just making a living, Peter's life turned into a life of profound purpose. The church was built on what Peter did following this moment. It became more than just his occupation. It became more than just his nine-to-five grind. Living for the weekend, saving up for a vacation, hopefully retirement one day. Can I say that all those things, they're, they're not bad. They're good things to, to strive for. But there has to be a higher calling. None of these things are wrong goal, goals or they're dev- devoid of their meaning. But Jesus profoundly changed Peter's priorities. And there was something more. If you look at verse 19 of chapter 21. So Peter jumps into the water. He swims to Jesus. He's with him. And do you know what Jesus says to Peter? He says to him, follow me. This is a mirror of the exact same words Jesus said to Peter when he called him the very first time. Jesus said, come follow me. Which is an interesting statement because Jesus is literally just days away from returning to the Father. He's days away from from his earthly ministry being completed. So what does he mean, come follow me? Jesus is calling him to a new journey of discipleship. This is profound. Um, this This is... so profound because this new journey means that, that, that t- the trajectory of Peter's life has shifted on the resurrection. Think about this. For three years, Peter has walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, watched Jesus heal people like we just talked about, watched Jesus uh, uh, do these miracles, these incredible things. He slept out under the stars next to Jesus. He served him teach and preach and all these things. But then Jesus died, and do you know what Peter did? He went back to his old life. 
Because, because Peter realized something. He knew that even a wise, miracle-working guru was empty if it was now dead. If Jesus was just someone really wise that could do some incredible, incredible miracles and, and preach really good messages, but if he's now dead, it's pointless. But when he saw that Jesus was resurrected, it changed everything. Because the crucifixion, listen to this, church, this is so important. The crucifixion, it proves the humanity of Christ. He died. But the resurrection is what proves his deity. The resurrection is what proves that Jesus truly is the living God. This is what matters. The resurrection proves that that he is alive forevermore, that we have purpose beyond just living for a guy that gave some good thoughts and died a long time ago, but that he is alive today. I love listening to podcasts in the car. It, It passes time. Does anyone else listen to a lot of podcasts? I'm a big, okay, it's me and a couple people. That's good. I'll tell you what they are. It's like the radio, but it's off your phone. Um, I listened to a podcast a while ago uh, that, that was about the first atomic bomb that was dropped in 1945. And after that event happened, there was a scramble across the world, nations trying to get this atomic technology. And between 1945 and 1963, in 1963 an armistice was kind of reached that no longer was there going to be testing done. But between those years, over 400 atomic bombs were blown up on the surface of our earth as tests. Pretty incredible. And these, these explosions shot all kinds of radiation things into our atmosphere. And along with the stuff that was blown up into our atmosphere, was some, something was created, and it's called C-14. And C-14 is kind of an innocuous isotope, but it blanketed our globe because it was blown around by all the winds and everything like that. And this small isotope then found its way into the human bodies. Like I said, it's, it's innocuous. It doesn't really affect us. But the fact is, because of what happened, every single human cell in every single human being now has C14 in it. And so, at a level, each one of us carries a little bit of the nuclear age within us. Scientists are actually using these measurements of how much C14 is in different cells to gauge the age of certain uh, 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 tissues in the human body and things like that. It's an incredible thing. But because of all those tests that happened between those years, we now all have within us these measurable levels of C14. And when Adam and Eve, the first human beings ever created by God, sinned, an explosion happened in creation that rocked all of creation. That perfect communion with God was suddenly severed, and each one of us, the Bible says, have at some point, like the sin of Adam, Adam, chosen our own way. We've gone our own way. Um, No matter how good we try to be, sin has marked every person. In the same way with C14, it doesn't matter how, uh, where you live, it doesn't matter what food you eat or how hygienic you are, we all have that within ourselves. In the same way with sin, it doesn't matter how good a person you try to be. You can say, I don't cheat on my taxes, I'm, I try to be really nice to my neighbor even when they, you know, the, their dog leaves messes on my lawn. Um, I, 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 uh, I, I, I'm kind to my spouse, I do all these things, I, I rarely speed, I'm, I'm definitely no Hitler or Mussolini, I think I'm a pretty good person. But the truth is, sin is in each one of us no matter how hard we try. Sin is, sin is part of our fallen nature. You say, but Pastor Brent, I want to be good enough. I think I'm good enough. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, if we, ha- if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. 
You see, how, how do you determine the barometer of what's good enough? What's the level that we make that mark to say, this person's good enough for relationship with God and this person is damned? How do we make or justify that, that line that's to be drawn? What barometer justi- gives us justification with God? The truth is none of us can live to that standard. In the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, it says that every one of us has sinned. Every one of us has fallen short of God's glorious standard. We all have fallen short of God's glory. If we serve a perfect God, I am glad we serve a perfect God. Can you imagine, you know, you see, you read stories about the Greek and Roman gods and how flawed they were and how they had, you know, all these major issues. Aren't you glad we serve a perfect God that's always good? That there is no, there is no, there is no like, oh, I, I hope he's in a good place today. I hope that, you know, he doesn't fly off the handle, but God is good and he's perfect. And because we have a perfect God, he requires perfection to have relationship with him. But because we have that choice, we all fail. We all fall short. And because sin exists and lives in us, there are heavy consequences. See, unlike the harmless C-14 that's in our bodies, the consequences of sin are massive. The book of James says that sin, when it's full grown, will give birth ultimately to death. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Wages, as you know, if you get a job and you go to work, eventually what you're earning, those are wages, right? What we've earned with our sin, ultimately what we receive is death. And we've all brought that upon ourselves. The wages of sin is death, but it says this. But the gift of God. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He gives us life and it's free. There's nothing we have to do. There's no, there's no special uh, class you need to go through in order to, to attain this. There's no, there's no special hoops that you need to jump through. It's all a free gift through Jesus. The resurrection gives us life. And there's one person that lived that perfect life in order to give it to us. There was one person that lived a life without sin, and that was Jesus. And he took the sin that we deserve death for, and he took all our failure upon himself, and he died and took it to the cross for us. He died in our place. Where we deserve death, he took death. But he didn't just die for us. Because that's, just, that's a hero. I've used this illustration before. If I was about to step out into the road and a car was coming, and you went, no, Brent, and you dove, and you pushed me out of the way, and the car hit you instead, and you died in my place, and I lived. What a hero you would be. But do you know the truth is, years down the road, at some point, I'm still going to die. Despite the sacrifice you made, despite how heroic that action was, I am still going to face death one day. See, Jesus wasn't just a hero that stepped in the way of a train for us or a car for us so that, so that he momentarily saved us, but he saved us for eternity. His coming back to life is what gives us victory. It wasn't just a death for a moment. It was a death for all time because his resurrection is what gives us life. See, this is the linchpin. This is the central point of our faith, church. Can I say, this is what it's all about. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Why does it matter? You see, we can, 
we can go through all these, these things that we do as followers of Jesus, all these exercises of faith saying, I trust you, God, but it's meaningless if Jesus wasn't raised. And Paul recognized this in the book of 1 Corinthians 15. He said this. This is a compelling argument. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And if Christ had not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. So here's where it comes to. The resurrection brings us to a point of decision. It's binary. It's A or B. There's no other option. It's one or the other. There's no riding the fence. Either Jesus is who he says he is. He's the son of God. He was raised and resurrected and he he is truly uh, the, the one and only way to salvation. Or Christianity is a false religion. You see, the truth is, if the resurrection didn't take place, it's a false religion. But if it did take place, here's where we stand. It establishes that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. And Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's not another option. It's not, could there be another path? Could there be another way? Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And so we come to this point of decision. The only way, Jesus said, by which we can be justified is through Him. And so I invite you right now to the moment of decision. Balance it and weigh it in your heart. Who do you say He is? Like the angel did, inviting them into the tomb. Look where He laid. He's not here, He is risen. Is Jesus who He says He is? I want to give you a moment. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to give you a moment with God. I want to invite you to encounter this Jesus today. Because like Peter, like Peter felt, if Jesus was just an incredible teacher and a miracle worker that died to tragic death, it isn't enough. Right now, you need an encounter with the living God. And I invite you to encounter Him this morning. If you feel a stirring in your heart this morning, I want to say the Holy Spirit is beginning to prompt you. He's calling you. This morning the Holy Spirit calls you. The Bible tells us that God pursues us with His love. And right now He pursues you. If you've been living life day in and day out without purpose, if you've been living life and the end just seems empty and confusing and devoid of purpose, and right now you can feel that, you're like, there's something more. There's something more. That's the Holy Spirit drawing you, saying, yes, I created you for more. You are more than just a science experiment for God. God didn't make you. You aren't some sort of an accident on this earth, and He's just observing what's going on. But He created you for relationship, and He wants to know you this morning. He wants to know you. You were created to know God and to be known by God. And right now, I invite you to that relationship with Him. With every head bowed and every eye closed in this place, I want to invite you to know God and to make Him your personal Lord and Savior. Not just uh, uh, an event that happens on a platform or worship that's sung or something that a group of people that meet in a church believe, but what you truly own and walk with. Say, God, I want you to be my Savior. I want to give you my heart this morning. 
So with every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, I want you to have this moment with God. Is He who He says He is? And if so, do you trust Him? Right now in this room, if that's you, this isn't a thing for me, this is between you and God. But if that's you and you say, I've decided to trust Jesus with my heart, with my eternity and my life, I trust you, Lord. Maybe this is your first time to give your heart to Jesus or maybe you need to say, God, I'm coming back. I've been that sheep that's been wandering and I need to come back to you. If that's you in this house right now with our heads bowed and eyes closed, would you raise your hand? I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Raise it high. Yes, thank you. I see those hands across this room. Anybody else want to join these? You can put your hands down. Thank you. Right now, I want us to pray as a community, as a family, to pray this prayer. The prayer isn't magical. It's about a heart decision. I want to invite you to say, God, I'm going to give you my heart today. So just repeat these words after me. Like I said, it's not in the words, but it's an act of faith. Say, dear Jesus. Say it out loud. Say, dear Jesus, thank you for coming for me when I didn't know you. You still loved me. While I was still a sinner, you pursued me with your love. This morning I put my trust in you. I believe that you are the risen God. That Easter is about salvation for my soul. And that I can have eternity with you. So today begins the journey of me following you every day of my life. From this day on, you will be my God, and I will be your disciple. Thank you. I love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. The Bible says that if you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart, maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you meant that prayer in your heart, that heaven erupts into celebration, that God actually starts dancing. He is excited when a sinner comes home, that there is a celebration in the halls of heaven when you come home to be in relationship restored once again with Him. There is no longer condemnation. The sin that has weighed you down, that pack that you've been carrying around saying, I feel so much guilt and shame for who I've been, He has relieved it and said, it is forgiven it is forgotten as far as the east is from the west so far is your sin from you and he has made you new and whole in him so here's what i want to do right now is if you have said i am either recommitting my life to jesus or i i i have given my heart to him i want to ask you to please mark your connection card we didn't officially receive him yet in our offering if you put one in already don't worry about it we can do it again Um, But what I want you to do is get a connection card out and mark on it that you have either given your life to Jesus or recommitted your life. And we want to be in touch with you to give you the tools for your next steps in your walk with Jesus. Because it's not about just that moment. It's about the lifestyle of following Jesus then. It's a big decision. Let me, don't, don't let, don't take this lightly. Following Jesus is a big decision. Jesus called it taking up our cross. That's not a, a a lightly made decision. But this is a a decision that's going to be filled with joy and profound change in your life. And so I want you to mark that on your connection card. And the second thing is this. Next Sunday, we're having a baptism celebration. And I set my goal. I said, I I believe that God put the goal in my heart. I want to baptize 20 people next Sunday. 
people that have said, I've decided to follow Jesus and I'm going to publicly declare that, uh, that He is my Lord and Savior. I want the world to know it. So if you've never been baptized or maybe you've recommitted your life and you want to be baptized, mark, mark your connection card. Let us know. We will be in touch with you. We're almost halfway there already. We were looking at, looking at the people that have signed up. We're so excited. It's going to be a great celebration Sunday. We want you to be a part of it. Amen? We want you to be a part of the celebration, so we will let you know about everything, how it's going to work, what to expect, all of those things. There's nothing to be afraid of in it. It is a church that is going to be encouraging and spurring you on. But I want to close with this. Let's stand together, church, as we go this Easter. In Revelation chapter 1, John is having this vision of eternity. And it's a little bit overwhelming because he sees Jesus and he's like got a sword for a tongue and, and he's carrying stars and it's like he's just overwhelmed by the whole moment. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. And then he tells him this. He says, for I am the first and the last. That's the alpha and the omega. I am the living one. I died, yes, but look, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and the grave. He has overcome the grave, amen? He's overcome the grave. Amen. We we thank you, Lord, that you are victorious over the grave and that we have life in you. And so we go with this victory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's worship together. Amen. Amen. We are celebrating the Savior and we have welcomed people into the family of God today. That is a reason to celebrate. Amen. Put your hands together. Let's sing this final chorus before we go.